You're listening to Trademarks Made Easy. Trademarks Made Easy is the podcast focused on helping brand owners in the e-commerce space. With your host, Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. But don't worry, you won't find too much legalese here. Well, hey there, and welcome back to the Trademarks Made Easy podcast. I'm your host, Susie Hickson, also known as the Private Label Lawyer. I am the founder of the Private Label Law Boutique, and we help our clients create long-term wealth with their private label products by guiding them through the complexities of the legal landscape so they can grow their businesses securely and confidently on a daily basis. Now, more specifically, I'm also a trademark attorney and brand name creation strategist. I've been doing this for about 15 years, and my superpower is really taking complex legal matters and transforming them into easily digestible solutions for my clients. So in today's episode, I address filing trademark applications for goods and services related to the hemp industry. I also have a few words of warning when it comes to filing CBD-related goods with the USPTO. So make sure you really pay attention here. And this will save you time and money and possibly some headache if you are filing for CBD-related goods with the USPTO. So make sure you grab a pen and paper because you're gonna wanna take notes. I'll see you on the other side. The first thing I wanted to discuss with you all today, a question that I got about filing for hemp-related products. And this is actually really interesting and exciting industry. I find a really exciting and interesting industry and one that is sure to grow over the next few years. But in just a little bit of backstory. So basically the question was, can I file trademark application for CBD goods? But it really does depend on some very specific things. So first of all, the Farm Bill was actually signed into law on December 20th of 2018. And this legalized the regulated production of hemp. Now, this is interesting because what happened was that this triggered a corresponding amendment to the Controlled Substances Act, the CSA, which actually removed hemp from the definition of marijuana and specifically excluded THC in hemp, tetrahydrocannabinols. I think I did pretty good on that one for it to be so early. But yeah, THC. So it's removed from the listing as a Schedule One drug, which is the most dangerous drug. So first of all, it's kind of crazy that marijuana is, a, uh, is considered Schedule One. <laughs> Even crazier that hemp had been, but it's no longer. Hemp is now defined as cannabis plants and derivatives thereof, such as CBD, that contain no more than... THC on a dry weight basis. And again, it's no longer considered a controlled substance. Woohoo! But it's still, even though it's by way of the farm bill, it was signed into law, it still can be regulated on the state level. So, kind of interesting. So, yes, the good news is 
you can register a trademark for goods that include hemp. And the reason this question came up, the question was, can I register a trademark that includes these goods? Having, when you file a trademark application with the USPTO, the goods within the the description have to be federally legal, right? <laughs> and before December 20th, 2018, even CBD, yes, it's very interesting, even CBD or hemp was considered federally illegal. So yes, you can register for hemp-related products. And of course, I do encourage everyone to still do, to create a really strong trademark for the goods that they're offering. And of course, do the clearance search. And then you have to think about, okay, well, now I want to file this trademark application with the USPTO. What do I have to do? So there's, I'm looking at some information that was provided by the USPTO in their most recent examination guidelines. So if you see me looking down, I'm looking at their examination guide that recently came out talking about this. So again, only hemp-derived CBD is federally legal not marijuana-derived CBD. So you have to be very specific when you are reciting your goods that the goods only contain hemp-derived CBD and that it's no more than 0.3% THC on a dry weight basis. And you can also have that actually written into your goods description so that it's perfectly clear to the examining attorney that what you're offering is federally legal. Another interesting thing that you need to include in here that you 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 might have to include it. it actually it you should. You should go ahead and proactively include this information. But hemp in in order for it to be legal, it must be cultivated in compliance with certain federal regulation and not just anyone is really permitted to grow hemp. And a license from the U.S. Department of Agriculture is actually required. So there is the possibility that an examining attorney, when they're reviewing your application, will actually ask you what your status is to make sure that the goods are actually in compliance with federal law. It's likely the trademark examining attorney, it's not required, but it's likely, he or she will inquire into whether the hemp from which the CBD was derived was grown within the U.S., was obtained from an authorized grower or supplier of industrial hemp as sanctioned by the federal farm bill and whether the covered goods to be provided under the applied for mark complied with the comply with the Controlled Substances Act. Now, also, I want to talk with you briefly about data first use. <laughs> Don't make it before the <laughs> legalization of hemp, right? So it was December 20th of 2018. So I don't know what you're doing before December 20, 20th of 2018, okay? But when you're filing your application, you're claiming your date of first use, you know, at the time of application or later on, just make sure that that, that first use date is not prior to December 20th, 2018, because it might raise a few little eyebrows on that one. Now, there's also the possibility if you're wanting to go a little deeper here, you could consider filing in certain states. And this is, would be really more applicable if you are actually selling CBD that's marijuana derived. You'd have to file on a state level for that and not on the federal level. Obviously, it's still federally illegal and you don't want to claim marijuana or 
marijuana-derived CBD in your good subscription. Very illegal, still. Can you believe it? <laughs> so I find this all very interesting, but yeah, currently cannabis is illegal. I think it's in 33 states for recreational and medicinal use. So you might, if you're one of those states and you are providing those specific goods or goods related to marijuana, then you should look into filing in the state that you're selling those goods in, Colorado, right? First one comes to mind, California. So one thing I think is going to be really interesting is how when this all, <laughs> when this bad dream goes away, <laughs> you know, when, when this all gets legalized, you know, there are going to be a lot of trademarks out there that are going to be fighting. I'm telling you right now for that claim date of first use. And I have no idea how all of this is going to work out. You know, there's still a lot of unknowns or a lot of unknowns when it's going to be, um, I guess, I'd love to see it decriminalized. Maybe that will happen and completely legalized. Maybe the feds will leave it up to the states. Like we just, we just really don't know. Every presidential candidate seems to kind of have their own position on it. It's going to be interesting. And hopefully in 2020, 2021, we're going to see a really positive movement towards legalization. I think that it's, if you are one of the states where you are offering products or services surrounding marijuana, I think it's wise to really consider filing for a state trademark registration in those states. I generally have kind of poo-pooed state trademark registrations and been like, no, okay, if you're going to protect your mark, let's just get it, let's just get it registered with the USPTO. But this is a little different. I would go ahead and look into trying to get it registered with a state that you're doing your business in. You know, when it gets legalized, then we're going to have to revisit how the dates of first use and claiming priority and things like that. So technically, when you file with the USPTO, when it becomes legal, you're you're not going to be able to claim a date of first use prior to the date that it became legal, right? It's going to have to be after that date. With that said, you know, you're going to have all these sort of pockets of use in Colorado and California and maybe Michigan and Vermont, all these states that are legalized. They're going to, you know, you're going to have, I could kind of foresee maybe some um, contested situations with who started using a trademark first. And if you try to get a state trademark registration, that's going to be good to have in hand. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's going to be helpful as opposed to just relying on some random common law use. So I strongly recommend looking into filing in your state if you can. So I think that was a great question. I, f I found it really interesting. I had to look into a little bit on the 2018 Farm Bill. I think, again, that we're going in the right direction as a country with respect to that. And hopefully we'll get that decriminalized. So another question I got is, do I have to start filing electronic applications with the USPTO? So I thought this was an interesting question, and I really wish people weren't afraid of, <laughs> of filing electronically with the USPTO. I, I have been doing trademark law since 2004, 2005. I've never filed anything paper. I've always filed electronically. But the USPTO is actually implementing new rules starting December 21st of 2019 that everything has to be electronically filed. Trademark applicants and registrants are going to be required to file their trademark applications and documents concerning trademark applications and registrations online using the online form. They're going to have to provide and maintain an accurate email address for receiving correspondence from the USPTO about 
their particular application or registration and provide and maintain an accurate postal address so that the USPTO can contact them if their email address isn't working. I think this is a great rule. I think it's going to be great for streamlining USPTO filings. And if you're not already doing electronic filings, why not? So get after it. I have a couple of questions I wanted to answer that sort of go hand in hand. So the first thing here is I want to file a trademark application based on intent to use. How can I be sure to establish that there's really an intent to use my trademark? So this is an interesting issue that comes up from time to time. What is really considered or what legitimizes that bona fide intent to use a trademark? There was a case several, quite some time ago, and it was a company, or I guess it was a, it was a company, they were doing a trademark contest. And so they filed like five or 10, they, they filed multiple trademark applications. And the one that they were going to actually go with was the one that was going to be the winner of some type of contest that they were doing. Maybe it was a voting type of system that their consumers participated in. I can't remember the details exactly, but <laughs> I thought this was interesting. They, they said the courts held that each of those uses was still a bona fide intent to use. So it seems even though only one trademark was going to actually go to registration. So it seems like the threshold is pretty low to show that. But at the end of the day, you have to have a bona fide intent to use a trademark in the ordinary course of trade and not merely to reserve a right to a trademark. So you can't have just some token use as a way to try to prohibit others from using that trademark. I see that a lot. But yeah, token use is is not permitted. So how do you, let's say someone later on challenges your alleged bona fide intent to use a trademark. I've never seen this happen. I've never had a case where someone tried to oppose my client's trademark based on that, but it's possible that a third party could do that. So there are some things, there's some tips that I want you to to keep in mind when you want to establish your bona fide intent to use. When you file your trademark application with the USPTO or you have an attorney do it, you need to have some type of documentation to back up that bona fide intent to use the trademark in interstate commerce. I've always said, you know, documentation is really, really important. It's CYA, it's cover your ass type of thing, right? So always try to keep really good records of everything you're doing. And I know they can get kind of crazy and I'm not 100% on task with this myself, but if you can keep records, good written records, that would be really wise. There's some documentation that I was thinking of that would work that I jotted down here. A file memorandum you would put into a file stating the concrete steps proposed to have been taken with respect to that trademark or have taken to that date that you make the memorandum. Make Just put a date on it, put it in a file, keep it for safekeeping. Other documentation could be emails or other written communications that name the mark and are to prospective suppliers, distributors, and retailers. And also notes of meetings or phone conversations discussing current plans for a product for which that trademark is to be adopted and the current status of those plans. So those are just some ideas of documentation that you might want to keep in 
your file. So that was a really interesting question. I appreciated that one. And then I kind of got in trouble from a client. They're like, Susie, why are you making me tied up my goods so much these days? You used to let me be a, a bit more broader in scope in my goods description. So here's what's going on. The USPTO has had this, what's called this proof of use audit program. And basically what they, the USPTO has done is they're going through registered trademarks and it's supposed to be sort of like getting drawn in a lottery and they'll reach out to the brand owner the trademark owner and ask them to provide specimens of use on two or more of the goods in the description than what they had previously supplied so basically what this means is they're going back and they're asking the trademark owners to say, okay, are you really using your trademark with all of these goods? Now, you know, a lot of us are guilty of providing a laundry list of goods and no, this cannot be happening anymore. We've got to get really good on tightening up these goods. The goal of this is that the USPTO wants to ensure the accuracy and the integrity of the USPTO register. So I think a bit, part of this problem stems from when foreign applicants file in the U.S., oftentimes they'll take their international application, push it to the U.S., and they're, they're permitted more of a laundry list of goods, and that ends up on our USPTO register. So it's going to be interesting to see to what extent the USPTO forces, I'm not sure if they can even do this, or, you know, tries to get these foreign registrants to tighten up their goods. I haven't heard anything about this, so I'm speculating, but I like speculating, so it's kind of fun. I don't know what they're going to do. I would think that they would require that they tighten up their goods. With that said, foreign applicants are not required to show use of their mark before they're granted registration. So it's like this, in, in the U.S., it's like this little weird loophole. It seems kind of unfair to U.S.-based applicants and registrants. I'm not going to argue with that. I have had situations where a foreign registration was the basis for a refusal to register for my client, a likelihood of confusion refusal. And I went back and basically told them, you know, we needed to see the use of the mark on their goods or we would try to cancel their application. That ended up working out positively for my client. But it's just one of those things just like you don't want to have to deal with, right? So that's what the USPTO is really trying to do. They're trying to have that register be more specific and more clear, more accurate. So what's happening is that the USPTO is actually really going to be ramping up this program. They've hired new USPTO staff to work on this, or maybe they moved some over to work specifically on this program. The goal is to audit about 5,000 registrations a year. Now, I don't want you or any of my clients to be subject to an audit. It might happen. So there are some things I want you to think about when you are filing your application or if you already have a registration. If you already have a registration and you have a laundry list of goods, Let's take a look at it and let's go back and see if we need to clean it up proactively, right? Because that could help you avoid the audit later on. Alternatively, you could wait until there's an audit, but I'm more, I feel like being proactive in this matter here is gonna be less expensive than being reactive. And that's that's my mantra. Being proactive is always less expensive than be, being reactive. I've been guilty of being reactive in situations. It happens, you know, to people. But if you can 
if there's things that are coming up in, in your business, just trying to be proactive is so much better. So this new audit program is actually really interesting. So yeah, what they're doing, let me just tell you specifically what this says. The audit program works by randomly selecting trademark registration renewals filed in a given year and requiring the chosen registrants, the chosen ones, to provide proof of use for at least two additional goods or services per class per class. If the registrant cannot demonstrate use, the USPTO will institute a partial cancellation of those goods and services. USPTO has noted recently that over 50% of all audited registrations have resulted in a partial cancellation of goods and services. So the good news here is that it doesn't sound like they're going to go through and just straight up cancel your registration, right? Like they, they want to give you the opportunity to show use of the mark for those specific goods. And if you can't, just strike them from the registration. So what do you do in this situation? What do you do if you're applying for a trademark with the USPTO? <laughs> this is what you do. You, you have to take that recitation of goods and services seriously. And, you know, you have to be honest about what goods you're actually using with respect to that mark and if there's any goods or services that you're not using you need to strike them out and i have been working with clients right now who who are sort of in that phase where we're trying to file our specimens of use we've been issuing notices of allowance and so the reason this has come up is i have had to reach out to clients and say hey we filed a laundry list you know but because you know four months ago you weren't you know sure about you know exactly what goods but now we have got to tighten up our goods Let's, let's only proceed with the goods that you're using the mark for. It's good to try to be somewhat broad in scope of the goods and services description if you can, to the extent that you can. But the USPTO will, will only allow that to a, to a certain extent. I believe that you can say furniture, but I don't think you can just say clothing, for example. You have to be like the specific type of clothing. Be realistic when you're writing your goods description, your services description. You know, if, you, if you're like, I, I don't think I'm going to ever do this, take it out of the description. It's not necessary and it's not, it's not really good practice in the long run. And I know that I am um, taking this lesson to heart myself and I'm working really hard with clients right now to try to tighten up those goods and services description. I want them to avoid audits later on. And I think that even though they say it's random, I have a feeling there might be certain parameters they're looking for. <laughs> and then maybe they'll search randomly from within those parameters. So I hope that this quick Q&A was really helpful for everyone. I hope we got to learn some good stuff about the budding hemp and marijuana industry. <laughs> I'm really not that funny. Yeah, of course, if you have any follow-up questions about what we've talked about, please feel free to ask me, shoot me an email. And I hope that you're enjoying fall or spring <laughs> if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. But anyway, thank you so much. Hope you all have a great week and feel free to reach out if you need me.
Thanks. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you loved it and I hope you found it a value. So make sure you visit theprivatelabellawyer.com and grab my free brand protection musts before you even think about listing your products on Amazon. And remember, never stop learning. Thanks for listening to Trademarks Made Easy with Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe anywhere you find podcasts or at theprivatelabellawyer.com. Remember, the information provided in the Trademarks Made Easy podcast should not be construed as legal advice. It's for informational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered a substitute for legal advice. Also, I'm not your attorney. You should engage with an attorney to discuss your specific legal issues. And finally, while I have taken precautions to ensure that the content of my podcast is current and accurate, errors can occur, and thankfully, like us, the laws are ever-evolving.